You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Welcome to Sojourn uh, Midtown. If you are a first-time guest, my name is Jamal, and we are glad to have you. One second, I can't do two things at once. I want to light a candle here uh, to try to change the mood after that reading. <laughs> and it's not working all of a sudden. Hmm. It's futile. Vanity. All right, there we go. All right. Well, let's pray. Thank you, fathers, for your word. Thank you that your word gives life. It wrestles with the complexity of life. You don't hide from us the reality of our humanity and creatureliness. You don't trick us into following you by making big promises, but rather you shepherd us through life by reminding us that whether we're on the mountain or in the valley, uh, that you are with us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are first-time guests, welcome. My name is Jamal. I'm one of the pastors here. We are thrilled and elated that you would spend your Sunday morning with us. And whether you're a Christian or someone who is just curious about Christianity, uh, whether you have been over-churched or you are under-churched, we uh, really uh, do not take it lightly that you are here. And we pray that a word would be sung um, or preached uh, to enrich your life in Jesus Christ. Today, we start a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, we are going to be in this series to the end of the summer, so 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes. And today, I'm going to talk uh, from the subject, the first uh, chapter, simply on the title that life is futile. Uh, life is futile, and life um, is, is, is vanity, as some of your translations say. Um, and as you travel through the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you may be looking for resources. I just put some on the screen uh, that you want to uh, study in your own time and in your own way. Um, All of these are great resources. My favorite uh, from there is probably Recovering Eden, uh, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes by uh, Pastor Zach Eswine. I think he really gets to the heart of what this book is. And so as we look at the first chapter, we're going to kind of just have four movements, and the movements are, are going to be pretty simple. We're going to look at uh, who uh, the author is and, uh, and, and who uh, the, the, uh, the, the passage kind of opens up with in verse one, the words of the teacher. Um, then we're going to move into his sermon uh, because this is a sermon. Uh, we're going to look at the sermon. And then we're going to look at this theme that the teacher is going to bring up, the same old, same old, uh, which looks at verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 1 through verse 11. And then finally, we're going to go into a movement to look at the limitations of wisdom. 
And the thing I want you to understand is that the teacher who was in this text, he has something to say. The Kohilath in the Hebrew is one who is gathering people together in order to deliver a message. Uh, This book is almost intended to be read in an assembly of people. Um, It's like a pastor who is shepherding his uh, people. Now, historically, people have recognized that uh, Ecclesiastes is most likely written by uh, King Solomon. We see this in verse one, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And it's most likely that uh, this is uh, the words of Solomon, as Solomon is the literal son of David. And he is the king of Jerusalem. Throughout the book, he's going to talk about how he uh, surpassed more wisdom and more knowledge than anyone else. And we know in other places of the Bible that this is often attributed to King Solomon. He was one who was seen as the wisest person to ever live. He had people traveling all over the world and the globe to sit at his feet like the queen of Sheba. We read this in First uh, Kings. But this preacher... um, Uh, also, or the teacher, the person who most considers to uh, write this book, um, is is often sharing in first person. He'll say, I applied knowledge or I applied this to my heart. But some people, some theologians uh, think that Solomon was not the author, that someone is using Solomon's life and Solomon's voice to teach uh, deeper truths. And the reason they say this is because um, it's not always written in first person. For example, verse 1, as well as starting in chapter 12, verse 9, it seems that there is an interpreter. It it seems that someone is uh, speaking in the third person. And so uh, this text doesn't necessarily have to be by Solomon, but what we can conclude as the people of God that it has uh, a Solomonic type of of way, um, that, that someone wants us to understand his life and understand major lessons from it though I believe and attribute it to Solomon. But the preacher, the teacher has a very specific message and he doesn't hide it from us. We see this in verse two, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility. Everything is futile. In fact, some translation says absolute vanity, vanity, all is vain. Others say everything is meaningless, meaningless. Life is meaningless. What a message. What a sermon. The preacher sounds less like a biblical author, if we're honest, and more like a street preacher who is bitter at life. It sounds like the person who walks around the park shouting at people, repent or die. Uh, This doesn't seem like a very inspirational sermon, but what I want you to understand is that this book is a call from the teacher, from the preacher, and it is calling people to wake up. It is calling people to see uh, life as it truly is, to stop pretending, to stop declaring it to be anything more than futile. It's important that we understand that the book of Ecclesiastes is not an epistle. Sometimes we hear people uh, preach it as if this is, is Paul's words and we're looking for uh, really strong doctrine or uh, straightforward principles. That's not what this is. And the book of Ecclesiastes is not a, a gospel. This is not John. This is not Mark. This is not Luke. This is not Matthew. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that is written by a philosopher. 
before Francis Schaeffer, before Plato, before Kierkegaard, before Nietzsche, uh, there was Ecclesiastes. There was the sage who is writing in order to communicate to us lessons of wisdom that he lived. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is important to us because it disorients us. It's unlike any other book of the Bible. And it's by no mistake that the book of Ecclesiastes comes after the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is punched with uh, uh, principles uh, for living. And sometimes we take these principles to be promises and we become disoriented towards God. We become uh, embittered because we think that life should have worked out a very specific way because we live a very principled life. So we take Proverbs, like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10, which says, honor the Lord with your first fruits. Work hard and be honest, and God will bless you with wealth, honor, and riches. Or Proverbs, like Proverbs 22 and 6, raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And we take these principles, and we turn them into promises, and we say, and we make life for, for, uh, very formaic, if I do this, then God will do this. If I tithe and give regularly, if I come to church, if I am generous with my giving, God is going to make me wealthy. God is going to make me financially secure. God is going to honor me and bless me. Or if I raise my child up and, and create a home that, uh, that fears the Lord, that loves the Lord, if we do devotions together, then my child is going to grow up and be a Christian. And the problem with this type of reasoning is, is that it's not a guarantee because the Proverbs are not promises. The Proverbs are principles. The problem with this is, is that uh, life is pretty unpredictable, that bad things happen to good people. And that's what we learned in the book of Job. Here was a man who did everything right. Here's a man who feared the Lord, who walked before him, who woke up early and made sacrifices to him, who prayed for his children every morning and calamity and catastrophe hit. He lost his wealth. He lost his wife. He lost his family. And if we go through life believing that it's some type of formula and that if we do this, then God is going to give us that when tragedy hits, when our business suffers, when our child walks away from the Lord, when a friend unexpectedly dies, when a spouse leaves us, we're crushed. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a gift to those of us who want to see life as either black or white. The book of Ecclesiastes is a gift to us for those of us who think that we can figure life out and with time, everything is just going to fall in place because it, it reminds us that life doesn't work the way we want it to. That life is not always as it seems. It doesn't follow our rules. And so in order to make this point, sometimes the author appears to contradict himself and he does this because he's inviting you to think. 
He's inviting you into his thought life. He's inviting you to wrestle with humanity. He's inviting you into the struggle. He's inviting you into longing. He is teaching you to be human. He's inviting you into a a, a dialogue that is inductive so that you can ponder and ask questions. And he does this through poetry. He does this through riddles. He does this through rhymes. He does this through irony. He is teaching us as Christians to be hospitable, to be hospitable when our neighbors who are not Christians have deep questions about life. He's inviting us to be hospitable with with coworkers. He's inviting us to be local, to be rooted, to live in the here and the now, to see life not as a gain, but as a gift from God that is undeserved and unpredictable. The preacher here has set out to give us a different perspective of wisdom. And he is teaching us that life is evil. That's what the word we find in our uh, text is in in the Hebrew, um, where it says absolute futility, everything is futile. The the word there is is haval. Life is haval. Now, we see the word futility there. We may see the word meaningless. We may see the word vanity. But none of these words in the English really gets to what the the author is trying to teach us. The word haval. Um, literally means breath. The word haval uh, literally means vapor. This is what he's teaching us, that life is like this. That life is like smoke. You can't really shepherd it. You can't really grasp it. It's elusive. Um, You can't get a hold of it. You can't uh, figure it out. I love what Eugene Peterson, uh, how he translates the first few verses. He says, smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. What's there to show for a lifetime of work, a lifetime of working your fingers to the bone? One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for planet Earth. This word smoke gives us a picture of a rising campfire, and it appears 38 times through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is this idea of life being temporal, of being fleeting, of it being a paradox, of it being an enigma. Our pursuit of wisdom, smoke. Our pursuit of pleasure, smoke. Our pursuit of power, smoke. Our pursuit of justice, smoke. Our pursuit of beauty, smoke. Our pursuit of goodness, smoke. The teacher is out to shepherd us as a sage, to remind us that life is short, life is elusive, life is repetitive. This year, my mom celebrated a a milestone. Isn't she beautiful? Absolutely gorgeous. 
She celebrated a milestone of 60 years of life. And my mom isn't a very um, emotive person, very emotional person. I mean, like everyone, she, uh, she cries, she gets excited. Um, but, but that's not her, her normal way of relating. In fact, as I think back through my life and my childhood, I kind of remember three moments where she just visibly just was overcome with, with emotion towards me. One was uh, when I went off to college. I remember her hugging me and, and crying. And I thought to myself, man, this is really hitting her heart because that's not a normal response for her. The other is uh, a Christmas gift that I gave her along with Amber uh, about 10 years ago. For Christmas, we wrapped up a shirt um, that announced that we were having our first child. And I saw her leap for joy and get on the phone and call just about everyone. But as she celebrated 60 years old, she took on and embodied this this sage-like presence. As we gathered around the table, she had a sermon to preach. And with tears in her eyes, And in a very somber way, she looked around and she said, life is short. She says, it seems like just yesterday that you all pointing to me, my sister and my two sisters was these kids age pointing to my kids and and my sister's uh, son who all are under the age of 10. She said, where did it go? I blinked and it passed me by. And those words deeply struck me, and I've been carrying them around with me ever since January, reminded of how fleeting and how quick life is and how it is smoke, how it is a vapor, how it is temporal, how it is elusive. And the question that that the, 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 the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to ponder, he presents before us in verse three. He says, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun. What is all of its meaning? What satisfies us? What makes it substantive? It all seems so futile. It all seems so vain. It all seems so meaningless. It all passes us by so quickly. I love what Zach Aswine writes, reflecting on this. He says, most of us have rarely encountered this kind of preacher with this kind of approach. Many of us have little jettison of our religious language and garb to humble ourselves in creaturely ways as we sweat together with our neighbors on this parched earth. The preacher shows us how. From him, we learn to listen, to represent without spin how people think, feel, and act, to admit that we ourselves must weather the same conditions and that we too long to recover for ourselves a credible and honest answer to what troubles us. In essence, the teacher is teaching us how to live life under the sun. That's what we see in verse three. He labors under the sun. And the preacher is going to use this phrase over 29 times. He's trying to teach us how to live life on this side of the ground. And in order to teach us to do this, he, 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 he writes to us in, in ways that are human, in ways that are inductive, uh, to teach us to think 
in ways that invite hospitality to teach us to wrestle with these things with other people, as well as to learn to listen to people who are wrestling with the deeper philosophical things of life, who are trying to fill their souls with, with pleasure, with, with ethics, with religious duty, with, uh, with, with all of these other things, thinking that that is going to satisfy us. He is calling us to live our life in light of death. To live our lives backwards with more contemplation. To live our life from a posture of life as a gift, not as something to gain, something to prove. Verses 4 through 11 the preacher is going to make some observations and show us that life can be summed up and boiled down to this theme of same old, same old. Look at your text. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, Turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And I think that the author wants us to to live in this, and he's writing this in such a poetic way. This is a wordsmith. He is crafting this in order to invite us into this experience, and he wants us to see two things. One is this, verse 8, all things are wearisome more than anyone can say. He wants us to see that life is cyclical. These things happen. It's repetitive. It's elusive and it gets tiring. It almost gets boring. But he also wants to to learn from nature, just like nature um, goes through these processes over and over and is never satisfied. Neither is your soul. And no matter what we try to put in our heart or fill our soul with, it takes us through the same cycle of being excited and disappointed, happy and then sad, constantly chasing after smoke or the wind. Somebody's like, man, Pastor Jamal, I should have stayed home. I'm already a little down. Amen. But why is this important? (laughs) This is important because it it calls us to face reality, especially after coming through a pandemic where all of our lives was turned upside down. And all of a sudden, we all realize that life is very fragile. That something that we cannot see can bring the whole globe to our knees. That tomorrow is not promised. That our next breath is not promised. That things can change just like that. And this is where the prosperity gospel fails us. And this is where pop culture, Christianity, and evangelicalism fails us. And this is perhaps where the American church is is failing us, is, is that we want to ignore the fact that life doesn't make sense. That sin distorts 
that sin corrupts, that people betray, that people abuse, that we are complex beings that disappoint ourselves and others and fall short of God's standard, that sex does not satisfy, that more trophies does not satisfy, that pats on the back does not satisfy, that life is very mundane and is made up of laundry and arguments and cleaning up spills and hard conversations and normality. So he teaches us through reputation that it's wearisome. And he humbles us. He pulls up a chair. He lights a candle. He talks not as a prophet, but as a sage. Let's look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? You say, well, isn't this false? Because there is things that's new under the sun. There's technology that is happening and, and growing all the time. We've got tablets and gadgets and all these different things, but I think Solomon's point is not that there's not an invention that is cutting edge or new. He's saying at the end of the day, it leaves us the same with life big questions. Why does this all matter? Does my life matter? Why doesn't this fulfill me? What's next? This is what he said. It has already existed in the ages before. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Very few people have names that travel throughout history, maybe 0.1% of those who have lived. And so he's making the basic principle that no matter how much you kill it at work, no matter how smart you are, no matter uh, 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 what you purchase, no matter how well you raise your kids, no matter how well we do as a church, a hundred years from now, no one will remember your name. No one will remember my name. Life is futile. And so now what Solomon is going to do is he's going to take us on a quick journey. And it's really going to hit in uh, chapter uh, two next week. Chapter two is a, a phenomenal chapter. Uh, Pastor Jarvis is going to preach it, and he is going to do a phenomenal job with it. I'm a little jealous. I kind of wanted chapter two, and then I looked. I was like, oh, man, that's so good. But I'll be at one of our Harvard Network churches next week uh, uh, preaching uh, there. But he's going to take us on a journey to, to show um, how he came to this conclusion. And he came to this conclusion that all of life is futile because he experimented. He experimented. He, he went after a quest for wisdom. He went after a quest for uh, knowledge. He went after a quest uh, for uh, possessions. 
He worked his finger uh, to the bone. He tried to master everything. He tried to master time. He tried to be the most just person that he can be. And he takes himself through all this experiment, all of these different things. And at the end, he's like, everything that I try to complete or fulfill my heart or find my identity in, it didn't work. All of these things are just bubbles that, that are easily burst. And the first thing that he wants to us to see that he tried is wisdom. And that's why we're going to look at the limitation of wisdom. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I have applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied, the cyclical type of living. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. Now, this is the most successful person to have lived up into this point. He says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. You can't change it. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before him. Very humble. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow as knowledge increases, grief increases. So his first experiment, he said, in his life was to uh, become the most wise and knowledgeable person. And we know that Solomon was blessed with wisdom. He, he prayed to God for it, and God gave him an abundance of it. People came from all over the globe. As I said, to sit at his feet, the queen of Sheba brought wealth and riches just to have a seat at his table to hear him talk. He says, I went to the University of Jerusalem. I sat under the top professors. I got my degree in philosophy. He said, I studied the smartest people in the world. He even said, I even went and studied the most foolish people in the world, seeking to learn from them. And at the end of the day, it was all empty. It was all empty. Seeking to become the smartest person in the room, it won't satisfy you. It's all empty. Trying to go to the most prestigious school, and, and get the most prestigious degree so that people will be at all of you and want to spend time with you to learn from you, he says, it's empty. He says, all this learning has made me mad. And the high school student says, amen. <laughs> it's all empty. Verse 18, for with much wisdom is much sorrow as knowledge increases, grief increases. What is he saying? The more he learned, the more he realized how messed up the world is, how messed up he is, how messed up other people is. The more he learned, the more he saw the effects of the fall, the effects of sin, and all that comes out of all of our learning at the end of the day is hopelessness because there is no way to stop this cyclical deep brokenness of humanity. Parents, it is good for us to want our children 
to get the best education and the best grades, to understand philosophy and logic and mathematics and science. We want them to get a good job. We want them to be able to provide for themselves. We want them to go into the arts to cultivate beauty. But if we are teaching them that that is the key to happiness, And that is the key to fulfillment. And that is the key to success. We are setting them up for failure. Because at the end of the day, the most learned person in the world is going to come to the conclusion that Solomon has come to. It is all futility. What a masterful teacher. And here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. Solomon isn't going to save us from this deep reflection by pointing us to redemption. He's not going to point us towards Egypt and and God doing these miraculous signs to deliver his people. He's going to allow us to wrestle with these hard truths, this deep introspection for almost for 12 chapters before he really gives us his summary and what he has learned. And we need to learn just to sit in the reality that things are messed up, that things are sad, that life is broken, that life is not the way it's supposed to be. And we need to learn to lament and to grieve so that we can be hospitable to people who are lamenting and grieving, who are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places and all the wrong spaces and who can't find it so that we can step into their humanity and say, even though I'm a Christian, I feel the effects of the fall. I don't have all the answers. But we can show them that we were created for more than life under the sun. That God has put something in humanity, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 11, that that makes us yearn for more, that, that makes us unsatisfied, and that is eternity. And if we are are looking for satisfaction in earthly things that will or can be taken away, that that doesn't always make sense, we will never have joy in the abundant life that God has promised to us. But the only solution for life under the sun is if we can see over the sun, is if we can sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, who is the true sage, who came under Haval, who came into the emptiness, into the smoke, who lived the perfect life that we could not live, who pointed us to a better way, who was honest with us and said life does not consist of the abundance of possessions, who told us that nothing and no one can satisfy us other than him, who called out and who said, I am the living water. He who drinks from me will never thirst again. I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger again. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I have come to make you new, a new creation, to give you a new heart to create a new heavens and a new earth where life will no longer be under the sun. The life will beam and shine forth because of the sun, because Jesus took on the cross all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our disappointments. 
and he rose with all power so that we can be real about our existence, so we can be real about our pain, so that we can be real about our sin, so that we can be real about our, dis- about, about our despair, but not in there. We can have hope because he is made and is making all things new. So I simply want to invite you as we look to the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to invite you to a a way of living that is honest. I want to invite you to a way of living that stops pretending. That stops pretending that everything is okay and everything is supposed to be okay because it's not. And it's okay to look that in the face and in the eye and to open your hands and to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Fill me. Help me to see that life apart from you is dung. It is meaningless. It is vain. It is fleeting. And help me to have the faith to believe that you and you alone You and you alone can fill me. You and you alone can give me peace. You and you alone can give me joy. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.